All right. Praise God. I, I, I love uh, teaching at camp. I don't do it a lot, but I've done it a good bit, and I always think it's a, such a privilege just to minister for a whole week to kids. One thing I like about it is that you have usually 10 sessions, and so you can really build. You know, you have time to build. Of course, as parents, one of our great privileges is we have about 18 years with our kids, right? So we should be building, building those firm foundations and letting them see the big picture. Uh, just one story, got a lot of neat stories, that, you know, things kids say, but I, I taught at Camp Hope in um, uh, Dahlonega, Georgia. Have you heard of that one? Anyway, um, I taught chronologically, you know, the, taking all 10 sessions, creation to Christ, building it, not giving the gospel in every lesson, but teaching uh, concerning God, man, sin, and salvation as you hear the stories of redemption pointing to Jesus, and then Jesus comes and fulfills it. And uh, a little girl came up to me, nine years old, from a Christian family, solid Christian family, and she's, with tears in her eyes, she says, Mr. Paul, she said, when I came to camp, I, I'm pretty sure I was a Christian, but she says, now I know I'm a Christian. So that was what the Word of God did for her, just seeing the big picture of God's plan of redemption. We want to do a little bit of that this afternoon. First, I want to start with this story. Just again, putting before you the challenge. Uh, back in 1981, 80, 1980, there was a missions conference, and uh, there was a brother that got up. He had one minute, and this, this conference with 4,000 people it wasn't a missions conference. It was a Bible conference, and they had a missions minute. They gave him one minute to stand up and say something about missions to challenge the people. What can you say in a minute? Well, this was during the uh, Iranian um, hostage crisis. Fifty-two Americans were taken by the embassy, uh, from their embassy, and uh, taken by Islamic radicals in, in Iran, held for 444 days. And this was in the midst of that crisis. And so the brother got up and he said, he said, uh, how many of you are, are praying for the 52 hostages held right now in Iran? He says, practically every hand went up. He said, that is great. Think of it, 4,000 people praying for the hostages. Uh, now, how many of you are praying for the 48 million uh, Iranian Muslims trapped in Islam? Two hands went up. He says, what are we? Are we Americans first and then Christians? Sat down. We tend to be ethnocentric, don't we? We like our nation. The disciples were that way too. They weren't comfortable when Jesus went to Samaria, when he spent time with a Samaritan woman, when they invited him to stay. I can hear Peter saying, no, Lord, we're not spending any nights in the Samaritan beds, but Lord says, sure, we'd love to stay with you. If you look at John 4, that's, that's paraphrasing. But they stayed. They stayed for two nights, and he ministered to the people that weren't appreciated by the disciples. So, again, it's just a challenge to us, isn't it? What I'd like to do, the time we have here, is I want us to see a contrast, again, between what Muslims believe, what the Bible teaches. I want to begin, though, with the scripture, Romans 10. Paul prayed a beautiful prayer for the people of Israel. But we're going to apply it to any people group the Lord puts on your heart but it really fits with Muslims, and that is a people we're focusing on during these two days together. And uh, remember as we read this that the definition of Islam is submission, okay? And Muslim is one who submits. So he writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish 
their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so he's praying for this people, in this case the Israelites, that they have a zeal for God, they have an outward conformity, an outward religiosity, but it's not according to God's plan by which he can forgive us and and declare us righteous. And so it is with Muslims. Outwardly, they look really good sometimes in all their prayers and fasting, giving of alms. But inwardly, they're still lost sinners, aren't they? All right, I'm going to turn this around, and if you, I hope you can see. I'm going to use this for my Disney platform. Uh, one thing, as we work in Senegal, we, uh, I don't tend to use PowerPoint just because, just because uh, most of the Senegalese will never have that opportunity to, uh, to own a PowerPoint projector, probably not even a laptop. So it's good to teach people as they can teach, you know, uh, to emulate forms of communication that they can copy. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to show you some of the visual aids I've used in Senegal. And uh, just uh, in so doing, just to let us see for, in, a, in a clear kind of way what the Bible teaches versus what Islam teaches. And so the Bible I'm going to set here and uh, the Quran I'll set here. Let me just read you. Uh, a couple of verses from the Quran, first of all. We know John 3.16. We've heard the good news here. But in contrast, the Quran says in uh, Surah 4, they, the Jews, denied the truth and uttered a monstrous falsehood against Mary. They declared, we have put to death the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the apostle of God. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him, but they thought they did. Those that dis- disagreed with him were in doubt concerning him. They knew nothing about him that was not sheer conjecture. They did not slay him for certain. God lifted him up to him. God is mighty and wise. And so on, and I just continue a little, few verses down. People of the book, that would be Jews and Christians, do not transgress the bounds of your religion. Speak nothing but truth about God. The Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, was no more than God's apostle and his word, which he cast to Mary, a spirit from him. So believe in God and his apostles, his prophets, And do not say three, forbear, and it shall be better for you. God is but one God. God forbid that he should have a son. I'll just stop there. And so there's a piece of the Quran. And we'll talk about the two viewpoints here. First of all, as we think about what the Bible teaches about God, we're going to look at these four concepts, God, man, sin, and salvation. Okay, These four basic doctrines that... Everyone needs to understand to some extent so they can put their faith in God's way of salvation. Uh, in the beginning, God created, and we begin to see this God who reveals himself as Yahweh, uh, the God who makes covenants with people, the God who wants a relationship with people, a God of love, who wants you to know him and have a, a, a sonship relationship with him, be his sons and daughters, and he being a father. And so that's, that's God is revealed in Scripture. He's a God who wants you to know him. He wants to have a relationship with you. Okay? So I'll set that here. Uh, what is Islam's concept of, uh, of God? Well, the Arabic word uh, is, is Allah. And we talked about that yesterday. It's not intrinsically a bad word at all. Uh, it's a generic term for God in Arabic. But uh, Muhammad redefined who God is. And he basically made Allah God's personal name as well, which it never was. No more than my personal name is man. I have a personal name. Paul, but I am a man. God has personal names. 
He's, he's Yahweh. He's the Lord God. He's Jehovah. Um, he's, God is who he is. He's the Almighty. But this Allah of Islam is a God who's distant. You can't know him personally. Uh, you can't predict what he's going to do next. He's unpredictable because he can abrogate his word. He can make a promise and he can break it. Muslims think God is so great he can break his own promises. Now, since when is that great? I don't know. If you have a friend who promises you something and breaks it or a father who breaks his promise, I, I never hear people saying, I have a great dad. You know, <laughs> He breaks his promises because he's so great. No. Anyway, that's, that's the Allah of Islam. Can't predict him. And he's, he's distant. You can't know him personally. God. All right, what about man? What does the scripture teach? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the earth, so on. And so God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. He made, him, he made man to reflect his likeness. God is holy. God is love. God is faithful. Man is to reflect those characteristics of God. And so that's part of what the scripture teaches us about man. But again, as we saw, God created man to have a relationship with him. And, and God would come in the cool of the day and, and talk with Adam and Eve. And there was a relationship there. And we see this God who, who loves man and wants him to know him and wants him to be like him, wants him to reflect his glory. So that's the doctrine of man. In short, as God created him in the beginning. Meanwhile, Muslims, this is maybe a little bit brutal, but uh, uh, any, any Muslim will tell you that, that uh, I'm the slave of God. The best a Muslim can ever hope for is just to be God's slave. There's no concept of uh, a close relationship, of being God's son. In fact, they, that sounds blasphemous to their ears, to think that you could have, be like a son of God, that he would be your father. We don't even get into the fact that the Scripture teaches that we're also the bride of Christ. You know, that, that nearness that God created marriage to, to reflect that relationship between God and man. But uh, just a slave of, of God, you can't know him personally. All you're there is to do his orders. And so that, that in short, is how Islam sees, uh, sees man. All right, so God... Man, what about sin? All right, doctrine number three. What does the Bible teach about sin? Well, the best verse I know, the first verse I know, and uh, just a powerful verse is, is Genesis 2.17, when God told Adam, you may freely eat of all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall what? Surely die. And I'm using this knife here to represent that God said that the penalty for sin would be death. Well, what is death according to the scripture? Before coming in here, I cut this branch off a tree out there. And I would ask you the question, is that branch dead or alive? What would you say? If, if it's poking up like this, you might say it's alive, right? It looks, it looks great. It's still green, fresh looking. But when you see it's been separated from its source of life, Maybe if we could go graft it back in, it could still survive. But it's definitely dying, and for all practical purposes, it's dead. And that's really the definition of death in Scripture. It's separation from the source of life. And just like this branch has really three aspects of death you might think of. One is that it's been separated from its source. So you might say sort of its, its relationship with the tree is broken. 
uh, death has, physical death has installed itself in the branch in that these leaves look fine right now, but come back tomorrow, they're going to be really shriveled and eventually they'll be completely dried up. And ultimately, what can you do with a branch that's totally dried up? Well, you can throw it in the fire and burn it. Think of what God said to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will immediately be separated from me because I'm holy and I can't dwell together with rebellion and sin. And so you will be spiritually dead immediately. No more relationship in that way. And then your body, the moment you eat from that tree, your body will begin to die. Death will install itself in your body. That's physical death. Spiritual death, physical death. And then the scripture talks about also the second death or eternal death, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire that God prepared for the devil and his angels. And so you've got those three aspects of death. That's what the Bible teaches. It teaches that the payment for sin is death. That's the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. And we know that man did sin and he became like a broken branch, separated from his God. He's trying to cover his nakedness now with fig leaves and he's hiding from God and the relationship is broken. But it's the law of sin and death. God's law demanded that sin be punished with death. Remember, we learned back here, God is faithful. He keeps his word, makes covenants, and this he would be, in this he would be faithful too. He would keep his word. The payment for sin would be death. So we've got, that's the biblical view of sin, that the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die. What is the Islamic view? Well, Maybe what they would be hearing is what God said to Adam. In the day you eat of it, you'll have to uh, start praying some prayers and uh, fasting and doing good works, give alms. Uh, basically, isn't that what religions teach? That's what Islam teaches, that sin, yes, you've got a problem. You know, you don't meet up to God's standard or whatever that is, but you can fix it by doing good works. These are some prayer beads from Senegal. And uh, that Muslims would use, of course, many religions use prayer beads. But I find these interesting. Once you've gone all the way around and named the names of God or whatever you're told to do with the prayer beads by your religious leader, is there's another little feature here. You can mark it once, right? And then you go, you know, around again and you mark it again and so on for ten times. And when you've done it ten times, well, you just slide those back and you start all over. And that's man's religion. It's never finished. Never finished. And yet man has this sense that he's got to do something to hopefully be accepted by God because he knows he's unacceptable. So there's this sense of sin, but Islam really teaches that man is just weak. And they teach that babies are born pure without a sin nature. I hear, I've heard religious leaders on the radio in Senegal say things like, uh, what Adam did was Adam's problem. It doesn't affect us. Well, if this branch could talk, maybe these little leaves here would say, you know, we've got a problem. Look at that. We're separated from the source of life. But you think these ones out here would say, we don't have a problem. We're so far from that separation. It doesn't affect us. But we know it does affect the whole branch. And so Islam rejects the concept of being in Adam. They, re they accept that we're all descendants of Adam, but they don't see the connection between sin coming in, Adam, the federal head of the human race, making a choice, and it affecting all, all people. Interestingly, in Senegal, we have many proverbs, including um, this one, Janach du jour, Ludulu gas. It says, 
uh, a rat doesn't give birth to something that doesn't dig. Uh, in other words, the parent rats dig and the baby rats dig. Another one is musiba duyum chibopoborum. A calamity doesn't limit itself to the one from whom it originated. In other words, a parent could have a bad disease and pass it on to the innocent child. What the child do to deserve it? Nothing. But those things happen. And so it is with man, the original man, for the first Adam made a choice, and sin was passed on to all men. And whether you think it's just or not, that's the reality. And so man is lost in Adam. We're separated from God. We're part of the same branch. Islam says, no, just every person needs to do their best. Say your prayers, do your fast, do all these things, and the day of judgment, hope for God's mercy, inshallah, if God so wills it. You know, hopefully we'll make it in. So that's Islam's view of sin. God, man, sin. Okay, what about salvation? Well, the Bible has a lot to say on this, doesn't it? We know that uh, already God has made it clear that the wages of sin is death. All right, so what does God do? Here are sinful people, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and so on down the line. What did God do? Well, there was the law of sin and death, but God brought in a greater law. You know, you've heard of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be changed. What happened in Daniel's day? When uh, that all who did not bow, all who did not submit to, to uh, the king would be thrown in the lion's den. Well, the king um, brought in a greater law, didn't he? And he said, no, there's a law now that says that you've got to honor the God of, of Daniel. But uh, God's, God's greater law was the law of the sacrifice. And so he brings in the concept of you can bring an innocent lamb, a substitute. And God describes it in the book of Leviticus, but already we see it being practiced early on in the scriptures, even with Abel already, as he brings a lamb. How did he know to do that? Well, God told him. Scripture says, Hebrews 11:4, he came by faith, believing God. And so we see Abel bringing the lamb and putting his hand on the head of that lamb and and now the lamb becomes the sin bearer. The lamb is, is now taking Abel's sin. And so now the lamb must die. And the, and the lamb is, is killed. The blood is shed. And that blood provided an atonement covering for Abel's sin or for whoever. Whoever the sacrificer was, whoever the believer was that came by the blood of the lamb. It didn't remove the sin, but it covered it as an atonement covering. And this was God's plan down through the centuries. God says, I'll accept a substitute. I'll accept an innocent substitute to die in the place of the sinner. The law of sin and death must be satisfied. And so the soul that sins must die, but you can bring a lamb and it will die in your place. But we know that the value of a lamb isn't equal to the value of a man. And therefore, it was just a symbol of what was necessary to punish sin without punishing the sinner until such time as God provided the perfect sacrifice. And so we go down through history and we see the prophets, we see the sacrifices, whether it was Abel or Noah or Abraham building altars, offering sacrifices, or Moses building the tabernacle, this whole elaborate system, uh, a veil that shuts man out from God's presence, and yet God is saying, you can approach me with the blood of a lamb, and I'll I'll cover your sin as as like a a temporary payment, a, a symbol of what is necessary to remove your sin forever. And then meanwhile, the prophets are saying one day God is going to send a savior into the world and and he'll be led as a lamb to the slaughter. And so 
we move forward in the story. And we see that God does what he promised. He brings a Savior into the world. And that is none other than the Son of God himself, the eternal word, who comes, the sinless one, and he becomes the sacrifice. He offers himself up, the infinite one. He could do in those hours on the cross what we could never do in all eternity, and that is pay for our sins. But he did it because of who he was, the infinite one, dying in the place of the guilty sinner. And on the cross, he shed his blood. Excuse me. He shed his blood for our sins. And, you know, John had identified Jesus already as the Lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sin of the world, right? So the blood of Jesus didn't just cover sin, but it what? It removed it from God's very presence. And it cleanses from all sin. Because it was a perfect sacrifice. As Jesus was on the cross, God poured out on him the wrath that we deserved. And he took our hell in time so we might not have to spend eternity in hell. He took our punishment. And he satisfied all the demands of God, of a holy God. And something else, he was buried. Having said it's finished, he was buried. And, well, in Senegal, when, when uh, someone dies... Some family member has to go and, and buy six meters of linen. And, you know, they wash the body and they wrap it in the linen. They don't do the fancy embalming and all that we do here in the U.S. But they wrap that body in linen and they, and they bury it. And so it's a, it goes with a lot of grieving. It's a sad, sad thing. Death is a tyrant. It's a terrible, terrible thing. And so Jesus, too, the sinless one, he shouldn't have died because he was without sin. Only those that sin should die. But he died in our place, and he was buried. Well, the prophet David had predicted a thousand years earlier that death wouldn't be able to hold him, that his body wouldn't see corruption, and it didn't. And so you know the story that on the third day, Jesus comes out alive, and disciples go, and they see the grave claws, and eventually they see the Lord himself. And the Lord tells his disciples, you know, because I live, you shall live also. And we, we hear the scriptures that saying, oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, grave, where's your victory? And you know, for us who believe, Death has become nothing more than a door, a door through which we're going to pass one day to enter into the very presence of God. And so as believers in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we have nothing to fear because he took our place. He paid our sin penalty. And now as we believe, God declares us righteous in Christ. And we know that death is no longer a tyrant, but it's a servant who will one day open the door for us to enter into the very presence of God. And so, amen. That's what the scripture teaches about the topic of salvation. How do we enter into this? Well, it's, it's by faith. It's by repentance, turning from what we've always trusted in, ourself, our own works, and believing in Christ and what he has done for us, that he is the fulfillment of God's total plan to make us righteous and fit to live with God forever. Those are familiar truths to us. What does Islam teach? We've already seen the aspect of works, uh, doing your best, which connects right with the same theme of salvation, hoping for the best. But let me show you one more thing. When uh, Carol and I were in Egypt, we bought a papyrus here. This is uh, called the, um, uh, the, the Book of the Dead, uh, Hunifer's Book of the Dead. Hunifer was an Egyptian official who uh, had this road map buried in his tomb with him. This is a reproduction. This isn't the one. But uh, 
you can see it describes well up here you see the many uh, gods of, of Egypt and down here you see Hunifer himself being led into the judgment hall <clears throat> before what? Being led before scales, isn't he? The balance. And so here you're going back. How many years? 3,500 years or more, 4,000 years. You're going back into the Egyptian polytheistic worldview and already they had the concept of basically if my good works outweigh my bad, well, on one side of the scale here, you can see the feather of truth. And uh, on this side, they would put the man's heart and weigh it. And if his heart was lighter than the feather of truth, then he would be allowed to enter into the good place, the fields of peace. And he would, before that throne of judgment, he would declare his own righteousness. He would say, you know, I'm pure, I'm pure, I'm pure. And so here he is defending himself, his own purity. That was the concept of Egyptian polytheism. Well, not much has changed, has it? The Quran, I could read you verses there where it says, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you'll be granted access into paradise. In fact, they're very much optimists. There's a verse in the Quran that says God will give you ten credits for every good deed versus one for every bad deed. And uh, if you've ever seen a Muslim pray and you watch them after they're finished, if they're not in too much of a hurry, they're seated there and they go, As-salamu alaykum, as-salamu alaykum. Greetings to you, peace be to you, peace be to you. Who are they greeting? They're greeting their recording angels on either side of uh, of the one that records the bad deeds, one that records the good deeds. And so they're very conscious of the fact that they're going to face judgment and they're conscious of the scales concept. And that is, the again, the Islamic concept of uh, salvation. Now, the first words that are recorded in the Gospel of Mark that came forth from the mouth of Jesus when he began his earthly ministry was repent and believe the Gospel. Repent and believe the Gospel. If you think about a Muslim worldview, then we have to put faults over here, don't we? And we have to put true over here. That's what a Muslim believes, saying this is true. This is truth. This is what I believe. This is my life. This is what I'm hoping in. What you're saying there, we just read it. God has no son. Jesus wasn't crucified. Oh, yeah, we've got animal sacrifice every year, but it's not like that. They don't understand it like that. I mean, most of them don't even understand it enough to deny it. You know, it's ignorance. But they're saying the Christian, the biblical concept is false. What does God want from a Muslim? Repentance, right? What does repentance mean? Metanoeo. There you go. Thank you. It's already doing it there. Metanoeo. A change of mind, which leads to a change of direction. If I'm on a bus, where are we? We're in Miami here, okay? I want to go down to the Key West. I get on a bus and I realize, hey, this bus is going to Orlando. What do I have to do? I have to repent. Now, we don't often use the word repent in that context, but I wish we did because we wouldn't get so much religious baggage connected with it and we would understand it. That's what it means. I repent. I change my mind. I say, I'm on the wrong bus. And what's the proof of my repentance? I get off the, that bus and I get on the right bus going the right direction. That's repentance. And that's what God wants here. He wants a Muslim to say, you know, this is true. This is the message that all the prophets proclaimed over thousands of years. All the prophets testify. The first verse I learned in Wolof, actually, that I memorized was Acts 10.43. Yonentiala yip, sedin in yune, kep kukum Jesu Christ, yala dinilabal saibakar turum. All the prophets testify that Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ 
God will forgive you your sins through his name. That's the good news. And God wants everyone to believe that. And by default, you're going to have to say, hey, what I've been hoping in, what I've been trusting in is false. I've been wrong. I repent and I believe the good news. And so there you have just a little contrast between, a big contrast rather, between what Muslims believe and what the Bible teaches. And I just close with this. I'll tell you one story. You know, I mentioned that uh, Muslims see themselves as slaves of God. And uh, it's a young lady from uh, Singapore who was raised in a Muslim family. I actually tell her story in One God, One Message. By the way, um, the book out there, I'll just, I'll forget if I don't say it now probably. Uh, there are some of those books out there. I think we still have a, a case, about 30 or so out there. And uh, they're $10 each. If you don't have the money, just take one while supply lasts. But um, this is a book you can give to Muslims if you read it. It'll help you totally understand the worldview of a Muslim as well. And it'll give you a glorious look at the best message ever told, the best story ever told. There are also a lot of these little booklets, which is a very condensed version, about a 35-minute read of the gospel beginning in creation. So help yourselves out there. So in that book, a little bigger book, I tell Emma's story, chapter 27, I believe it is. But she um, was uh, 16 years old. She'd been raised in a strict Muslim family very dysfunctional family. Her parents had gotten divorced and all these elements coming together and she was just discouraged and uh, just really wanted to end her life. And she purposed to do just that. Uh, She walked up, took the elevator to the top of their apartment building, 10-story apartment building, and she got off. And she she was crying out to God, God, if you have anything to say to me, say it now. Otherwise, I'm jumping. And she walks down a little flight of stairs that led out to the balcony and guess what was laying on the stairs? A Bible. A Bible just laying on the stair well there. She had never touched a Bible before, but she knew something of what it was. She said, this is incredible. She picks it up. She goes back to her room, and she opens it, and it falls open to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. Long story short, she began to read that book and she came to know the Good Shepherd and her life was wonderfully transformed. She was, she was liberated. <laughs> yes, those chains were broken. And she today is passionate about the Lord. She's a mom of five children, passionate about making Christ known, so desiring that her Muslim father would come to know Christ and uh, her life has changed. She in the book I mentioned there, just a quote that she wrote me. I, I told her, I sent her what I had written about her, and is this accurate? And she said, just add this. She says, she added something about the amaz- overwhelmed with the amazing, abundant love of God. And we saw already from the survey there that the number one attraction for Muslims, and I would say for people that are hanging out on the, the beach there and the multiplicity of beaches here uh, in, in Florida, that are trying to find satisfaction in, in drugs and in, in sex and whatever it is, that still a life of true compassion, true care, uh, true reaching out to them with the love of Christ is what will attract them to. So may the Lord help us. We leave, we close with that thought, really, that it's the greatest of these is love, and yet we want to speak the truth in love and be those that are able to present the gospel in an appropriate and a clear way but with the motive of love and letting that be the attracting factor. 
May the Lord help us in our individual ministries, whatever that is, and may he encourage us to, to have a part, however small it might be, in remembering the 1.3 billion Muslims that are out there and desperately in need of the Savior. So thank you so very much for your attention and, and for your prayers. And we just look to the Lord to continue his great and mighty work that he's doing in the Middle East, in North Africa, West Africa, and around the world for his own glory. Thank you. Father, we just thank you again for who you are. We thank you that you've brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for a gospel, a good news that shows us the truth about ourselves, that we're sinners, helpless sinners, with no way to meet up to your standard of perfect, perfect holiness. And yet we know that you sent a Savior who was perfect in holiness. He was from your very own presence. He was your eternal son. He was the word by which you created all things. And he was made flesh and he lived amongst us and he took our sin on his own body, on the tree, and he conquered death for us. And we know that in him we are forgiven and declared righteous. We have your Holy Spirit living inside of us and we have a commission and that is to take this good news to those around us, take it to the ends of the earth. So, Lord, we just uh, want to commit ourselves afresh to uh, be the ambassadors that you've called us to be, to go out into a world in an appropriate way to preach that message, be reconciled to God. We thank you that the one who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Pray again for the Muslim world. And just uh, thank you, Lord, that in the midst of all the turmoil right now, you are at work. And we, uh, we just pray that you will give comfort to your people and courage and uh, just continue to work in the midst of these lives that are just uh, hurting and so much in need of this liberation that only the gospel can give them. We ask all these things in giving you glory in the name of our wonderful Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.